I, I just wanted to make a connection with the Buddhist's perspective. So in the teaching, a bodhisattva is an enlightened person who, instead of accepting nirvana as the result of his or her practice, has such a caring about how others could evolve toward enlightenment that he or she keeps coming back to help us. This is the teaching on Bodhisattva. One who keeps coming back to help us, or I should say many, many Bodhisattvas, saints, enlightened beings, keep coming back. They're right here with us in this room now. They, they are attracted to any space in which people are sincerely wanting to open themselves to enlightenment and to evolving. And they come to help us. So that help is the equivalent of grace because it's the free gift that came from beyond our own ego and was not based on effort. How do we know it's not based on effort? Because of the bodhisattva vow. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. Well, if the vow of the bodhisattva is to save all, that would mean saving those who do the practice, put in the effort, and those who don't. So it must be that the help comes to those who are not putting out the effort, who are not doing a program, who are not working on themselves. Hence, it's totally free rather than being based on merit or effort. And that is the meaning of grace. Everybody follow? So I want to point out that um, this is uh, not to be thought of as just a Christian perspective. It's in all religious traditions. It's an archetypal reality. The personification of the of grace in Buddhism is the Bodhisattva. Personification of grace in Judeo-Christian is the guardian angel. There's somebody with me who's trying to help me. Okay, now there were a couple of questions. First, um, I had asked a question. You said, hold on. Sure and Oops, you told me to raise my hand. Yeah, I'm yeah, please. That. Yeah. Nervously. Um, <laughs> through the talk on uh, that. You have admitted your fears. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to do it Easy. anyway. Easy. You're going to talk anyway. It's mandated, yes. Um, through uh, in a partnership of equals, not parent child equals now, yeah, and you're expressing to your partner 
the big emotions, anger, sadness, hurt, it's often, if not most often, as a result of your partner's behavior. It's brought... <laughs> shocking. Shocking. <laughs> it's brought up, and this is the piece that, through your talk, I, I just, I had this deep longing that it was missing to me where it fits in, and that's the R word. Reactivity and defensiveness on the part of your partner. Something you said okay. triggers them. So my, my big question is, could you talk on how that uh, comes into the equation in, in the transition of trying to incorporate the five A's in the relationship? In my experience, if you're with a partner that's very reactive and defensive, you know, at best you're back at the therapist's office and you've lost all kinds of ground and it feels hopeless. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. So this would be the main uh, obstacle to healthy communication because here you are and you're expressing a particular feeling or need. which is meant to go to the heart of the other person. That's where it's meant to go. That's where it's directed. But instead, it's interrupted by the reactivity. That's the point of the question that she's asking. So the first way to work with this, besides going to the therapist to try to work it out together. Um, the first way is to precede the whole topic by having what I call uh, a safe conversation. Safe conversation means that it's going to be okay to discuss something before there's an event that has touched it off. Once it's been triggered... There's no hope. <laughs> but before anything happens, you could say, you could sit down with your partner and say, most likely in the course of our relationship, there will be times when I will have feedback for you or you will have feedback for me. In order for this feedback to come through at the heart level, heart to heart, that is, intimately, we would have to free ourselves from the reactivity that might get in the way. So what can we do together to work on this? How can we notice when we're reacting and put it aside long enough to hear the other person? What do you mean? I never react. <laughs> if you get that, and have to slow down, go back. Well, most people have some type of reaction, and they may not even realize that they have it. So on the off chance that that might happen, uh, is there any way we could 
be aware of it. So you have to do all this when there's nothing on the table. So that's why it's a safe conversation. And come up with some way of being able to hear each other. Obviously, the way to hear each other is I listen attentively, acceptantly, appreciatively, so forth. But as you point out, um, the reactivity comes from two places. It's a reminder of something from the past. My mother came at me like this. Or it's a fear that you don't like me, you're blaming me, you're putting me on the spot, you're threatening me. And over and over and over, we would have to be willing, if we were really committed to the relationship, to see this in ourselves. And it's going to be very hard because most people don't even want to admit that this is going on. Follow what I mean? So this is how you would at least open the dialogue. Because you're not supposed to be tiptoeing around and walking on eggshells because, quote, you might react, unquote. If it's like that, then there isn't really a communication heart-to-heart. Feelings are from heart and go to heart. Now, this is the reactivity of the other person, but I want to add one more layer. It could also be that when you present your feeling or need, it has an element of blame in it. If that happens from your side then you're not going to be heard because that blame is going to interrupt the communication. So you would have to say, you would have to go to your mindfulness how do I express the reality of what I'm feeling here and now, just as it is, not punctured by blame or judgment. attachment control and so forth. And you just keep, you know, trying to have discussions like this and work out a plan. What are we going to do when we're angry at each other? Is it going to be okay to express it? I have a whole section on this and how to be adult in love, and I point out that the discussion has to begin with how was anger shown in your childhood? What did you feel when your mother was angry at you? What did you feel when your mother was angry at your father? What did you feel when your father was angry at you? Father toward mother. And it's a whole process that you would go through that helps you understand what you've carried over 
from the past about the topic of anger. See, it's not like learning the times tables. The times tables are just in you, purely. There's no blame, shame, judgment. I'm wrong. They're wrong. They shouldn't have made me memorize. There's nothing like that. It's just the pure times tables. And that's very, very rare that there would be anything in us that pure. All the other things in us are full of all kinds of historical implications and interferences from our parents, our family, the church, the schools. They kind of got in there and they contaminated the feelings so that you don't you can't access them purely that would be a very big job mindfulness helps us get there if i can be mindful about where i am in this particular moment as we were in our 10 minute sitting and just keep coming back to the moment without all the add-ons then i have the pure experience of the here and now so how can I have the pure experience of the feeling? And a good suggestion um, would be, let's just sit mindfully. Let's just do a short, you know, three-minute mindful meditation as part of our daily time together. Let's sit together. Three minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, however long you want to do it. Because there's something about learning to hold something in a pure way that makes communication possible and ends the reactivity. I no longer have to react with such fear about the anger because now I've come to trust that you have a way of showing the anger that's very safe. Questions about this part? Everybody follow? Okay, let's have one question, and then there's somebody else who had a question also. Oh, right here. Here, this is the person with the other question. Yeah. What is your first name again? Johanna. Thank you. So I was curious how you use this program when somebody is not afraid of abandonment and betrayal but comes to you after recent betrayal oh, yeah. and abandonment. Thank you. Yeah, her, her question was, um, and we can come back to this in a minute, but first, um, I've been putting the accent on fearing that abandonment might happen. She's saying... What if the abandonment has already happened and now you have a new fear, which is the fear of starting over or fear of loving at all? 
This is all related to grief. Your fear of starting over and the fear of loving again tells you you haven't done the work of grieving, the abandonment that already happened. So your first step, I'm sad that he or she is gone. I'm angry that he or she left me. I'm afraid I will never find anybody else. And I go through these over and over. And gradually, they wear themselves out. (laughs) And I notice that a shift has happened. I have moved from the three feelings in the grief to a letting go. And from that letting go, and only from that letting go, comes the going on. So I will open myself again here in the going on phase. Phase one, feelings of grief about the abandonment. Phase two, letting go of blaming anybody for it or need to retaliate. Phase three, I now feel I'm ready to go on. Only there are you ready to start again. So you don't work, you don't work on the fear of starting over or the fear of loving. That would be missing the point. You don't work on that. Your work is on what happened. The rest will take care of itself. You'll know you're ready to go on. Put yourself out there again, being willing to be vulnerable. Where did that willingness to be vulnerable come from? Where did that strength come from? It came from the letting go. It came from opening to your feelings. This strengthened you, opening to the feelings. The letting go readied you. The going on places you out in the world again to start again. This is such an important realization. This is the point to work on the fear of starting over. The fear of starting over and the fear of loving are signals pointing to Something's missing in the experience. What is the experience? I was abandoned. I lost someone. But when something is lost, it has to be grieved. So you go to your grief, and you don't work on the fear of loving. It just takes care of itself. 
And you can really trust this because <clears throat> it's a portrait of how the human psyche is self-restorative. How it reassembles itself. Like that toy in childhood where you have a, you have a plastic giraffe with a base. You press the base and the giraffe falls apart. You let go and the giraffe reassembles himself. We were already knowing how to do this. <clears throat> let go and reassembles. Because he, he or she, the one who abandoned you, toward whom you have no blame, the blame would be a sign you're not doing the grieving. Letting go of blame shows you've done the grieving. Um, because the one who was never meant to be so big that it disabled you from your grief. I can still cry about it. I can still be angry. I can still be afraid. So he didn't take that away from me. The going didn't stop me from contacting the deeper feelings. <clears throat> Reminds me of a poem by W.S. By w. Merwin. Buddhist poet called The Birds on the Morning of Going. My awareness of the birds on the, mo on the day that you left me is the idea. If I can say yes, I must say it to this and now trying to remember what the presence can bless, by which I know from all other parts how little has come to me that is breath, how little that is you. Oh, I have carried this fear, a blue thing, the length of my life. Bringing it here to the singing of these brightening birds, they are neither born nor undying. A life opens, it opens. Does it find occasion for every grief of its childhood before it will have done? Oh, my love, here even the night holds back. So he's saying, you're leaving it's bringing up every grief of my childhood. Oh, is that what happens to us when someone leaves us? It's so hard to face that the night itself is afraid of it. When we work with the grief, when we let the grief come through, pass through us, rather than try to stop it, how do we try to stop it? Blaming, reacting. Denying, 
We just let ourselves go through it. We go to the letting go and the going on. There's something about us that, you know, makes the choice uh, of someone, the big someone, you know, the big love of your life, shall we say? And invests this big someone with so much power that, and this is the other half of of my response to Johanna's question, that sometimes the, the someone is so big that it's well nigh impossible to do the grieving. We just want to hold on to any version of him or her that still remains inside. We don't really want to let go fully. I'm thinking of this other poem by Emily Dickinson. The soul selects her own society, then shuts the door to her divine majority, present no more. Unmoved, she sees the chariot stopping at her low gate. Unmoved, an emperor be kneeling upon her mat. I've known her from an ample nation Choose one, then close the valves of her affection like stone. So, so she, she, she chose someone that became so big that she just shut down. Uh, close the valves of her affection like stone. Can't turn them on again. Valves, can't turn them. And it doesn't matter even if an emperor offered his hand. She doesn't even notice him. Because she let the someone be so big. So no one was meant to be this big. And when someone has become this big, even to mess up your chances at grief, then you know there's work to be done. Because it came from such a needy place. And you let someone have so much power over you, the neediness made you lose your own power. So we keep that in mind as another feature of her question. Okay, was there another question left over from the other part of the topic? Because I didn't want to leave this, the one about the reactivity. Was there a question left over? Okay, way in the back. Somebody standing up with the gray shirt, the man with the gray shirt. Reactive. Yeah. Good word. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of anger coming up right now. Um, this is from before when you said uh, when working through abandonment, um, 
I don't know exactly what your words were, but look to God or look to a spirit or etc. Um, what if part of what you're so pissed about is being abandoned by God? Okay. Um, I guess it would be... an awareness. So let's go back to answer that question to my quotation from the 23rd Psalm, which most people, most people know this part by heart. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. So let's look at the elements of it. I, yea, though, yea means yes. Yes, I walk through. The Hebrew of it is the dark valley instead of valley of death. Yea, though, I walk through the dark valley. I, the Hebrew is, I fear no harm. And the other part's the same in Hebrew or King James. I, for thou art with me. Now, the you are with me part is sometimes not felt. That's what he means. Sometimes you feel like you're accompanied or held but at other times, you feel like you're just dangling in the void. One of the chapters in your book is on that topic. What happens when you're just kind of dangling and you don't feel as if there's the, the with part? It's kind of the silence of God, like Christ on the cross saying, Why hast thou forsaken me? He was quoting... He was quoting Psalm number 22. This is Psalm number 23. 22 says, why have you forsaken me? 23 says, you're with me. Seems contradictory, but no. The King David is expressing the two possibilities. Sometimes you feel forsaken and abandoned. Sometimes you feel accompanied. So in a case like this, there's only one thing you can do, and it's right here in the psalm. Walk through. I'm going to walk through the silence. I'm not going to blame. Say, why have you forsaken me? What's wrong here? I did everything right. Why don't I get a sense of your presence? You're not going there. You're simply walking through. When you walk through, a kind of fearlessness results because you're walking through without the feeling of being, of holding this higher power by the hand. You're getting more of a sense of your own power. Then the you are with me is the you that is your larger self. The one that's in the universe. And instead of it being dualistic, 
you with me, one, two. You with me. There are two. Instead of it being there are two, you go to there is only one. And the you are with me is comes together as I as I walk through, I let go of fear and everything becomes one. So instead of it being someone up there is silent, it's something in here and everywhere is walking through. It's a big accomplishment. And this is all we're asked in the spiritual life. That's why it's called a journey. Yay, yes, I walk through. And when I walk through, the fear is gone. And when the fear is gone, <clears throat> because fear is about separation, <clears throat> there's no longer a separation between the you and the me. They have coalesced into one and become higher power, larger self, true nature, whatever word you want to use, that pulls it all together in one circle, the center of which is everywhere and the circumference of which is nowhere. So I've entered into the larger life. True spirituality is more like this than like the demand or even feeling that there's somebody up there who likes me. There's no longer a somebody up there. It has all come together as one enduring and pervasive experience of oneness. What, what helped it get there? Not much. Just keep walking through. How long will it take? Not long. Just long enough to keep walking. St. Augustine expresses it so well. He says, It is solved by walking. It is solved by walking. Take that problem and just take a nice long walk in nature. Things start to clarify. Everybody following? Okay. One final question on that. Go ahead. So I'm I'm hearing it in this way, which, which is basically that there actually isn't anything out there doing anything. It's just the belief in God is not necessary. It's There's nothing out there doing it for you. From your actions, the feeling will come, and you may experience a feeling of there's something larger, but there, the, you can't actually say that there's something larger out there. It's like a feeling. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to, to prove it, but uh, some people see it that way. 
So it'll be up to each person in here to see it in your own way. You could continue to see it as there's somebody up there who is watching over everything. Or you could see it this way as it's all happening as one experience. And it will be um, up to you to notice if the way you see it helps you be more adult. That's always your question. Does this way of seeing it help me activate and launch myself as an adult in the world? If it does that, then it works for you. Because nobody knows for sure about these things. So wherever you are in the spectrum, spectrum being the dualistic view at one end, God is up there and I am down here. And then after death, I'll go up there. It's one approach. Or all the way to the other end, in which instead of being an up, there is no up, there is no down. I am simply here where I am. And it's just all one experience. And then anywhere along the spectrum. So you could even say it's both of these. It's both transcendent and imminent. Both beyond and within. Or it's just within or it's just beyond. What helps me walk through? That's my question. And grace comes in anywhere on the spectrum. Of course, in the Buddhist view, we don't have, there is no God as creator. There is no, it's, a, it's not atheistic, it's just non-theistic. Okay, but let's go back to our actual topic, which is fear, because I want to get any other final questions on that. But I'm glad we touched upon this. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Makes you question what kind of a spirituality you have. And each person in here has his or her own answer, which is a, a wonderful tribute to our diversity as humans. We want to watch out for institutions that try to tell us it's only one way. Okay, somebody else had... <laughs> yes, amen to that. Uh, who has the microphone? Oh. This man right straight ahead, right there. Dave, uh, the question that I had is uh, in your talks, um, you touched upon some tools or 
topics in Western psychology. And then you also talked about Eastern spirituality. You talked about <laughs> mindfulness, bodhisattva. You talked about you know being present. And my question is, it seems that Western psychology or traditionally has been limited or has fallen short. So why not just skip it and go to the spirituality part, which, <laughs> I mean, an Eastern spirituality specifically, which addresses generosity, which addresses that, you know, there's birth and death in every moment, that we are part of something much bigger, the universe, you know. I mean, and so why use these tools that are not really answering the real question and they don't, or at least traditionally, that's why we are in a center that is promoting Eastern spirituality. So why even go there? Why not go the real route? Well, I like to include both sides and kind of pull them together as much as I can. Do you feel that happening in the way I'm presenting it rather than just stay on one side, like just psychological or just spiritual? It would always be a matter of incorporating and integrating both because um, this psyche of ours, psyche, the Greek word for soul, S-O-U-L, so this psyche of ours has a psychological story, that's for sure, based on starting in childhood going right into the present. And it also has a spiritual dimension. The spiritual dimension is the same in every single person. The psychological part is totally unique. So we would always have to find a way to take our unique story and bring it to the spiritual source. But it can only be carried over when we are open to seeing it just as it is. We can't just disregard it and pay no attention to what happened to us. We have to look at our story with all its wounds, with all its limitations, with all its wonderful gifts, with all the beautiful and ugly things that have happened. We take all of this unique experience and we present it to that shall we say, other side of ourselves or a deeper reality of ourselves that has our spirituality and that can receive it all. Uh, Dante says in the Divine Comedy, the divine has such wide arms that it can take all of our experience. And once you see that, which is the equivalent of God is love, once you see that, you realize that there is some psychological work to be done and that when Jung has a way of 
talking about this work and its connection to spirituality. This is his quote. The journey with father and mother, up and down many ladders, precedes the opening of the spiritual gates. The spiritual gates, they won't be opened until you journey up and down the many chapters of your life with your origins. Finally, after many journeys up and down with them, parents, family, so forth, that's when the doors start opening into spirituality. So you can bring all the wounds with you It's not as if all the wounds have to be taken care of before you can be spiritual, but you can't do the bypass. You can't say, oh, forget this. Forget the psychological part. Just go straight to the spiritual. It doesn't really work. Nor do you have to have it all taken care of so that absolutely every problem of your childhood has been taken care of. That's not required either. All it takes is that you are willing to hold it all and present it. Present it to what? Present it to the larger life that waits to open. What is this larger life that waits to open? It's the kind of love that's unconditional. rather than conditioned by what happened. It's the kind of wisdom that you could never get from books, but is in you and in every person. It's the kind of healing that doesn't come from medical books or psychology books but wants to happen in a way that transcends any of the methods or programs anybody could think up. But it will always take some type of psychological self-inquiry, processing, somehow resolving at least some of it, and bringing it, as the, the poem I recited by Merwin, bringing it here to the singing of these brightening birds. Birds are brightening up the morning. I'm bringing all the experience to these birds. These birds symbolize spiritual powers because they fly to spiritual heights. I'm bringing it here to the singing of these brightening birds. Okay, we have one final question. Uh, Who has the microphone? Okay, right here. Was it you that had the... Camille? 
Michelle. Okay. <coughs> um, hello. Is it on? Yeah. Um, you said something about um, at the beginning that you can't be abandoned if you're an adult, like you can take care of yourself. Yeah. Is it the same sort of um, way of thinking um, as far as like being rejected, whether it be from a person or, um, for instance, I'm a writer and I have a hard time with like, what are they going to think of what I'm writing? And so I was thinking about when you're talking, is it like the same sort of concept of like, self-love, a connection to a higher power, and as long as, like, we're okay, then I'm not really rejected unless I reject myself? Like, how do you deal with rejection in the realm of all this stuff? Okay, well, that's a very good question, because you are rejected at times by others. (coughs) So let's say they or he or she (coughs) reject me. Uh, the eject part in Latin means throw. Um, they threw me out of their life, or they threw me out of their good wishes, or they threw me out of their respect. They threw me out of the relationship. It's a pretty strong word. <clears throat> so you acknowledge that you really were rejected, But you bring that, since it's a loss, you bring that to your grief program. As we said, our grief program is, I let myself feel fear, anger, sadness. That leads to the letting go. That leads to the going on. So, the rejection has not stopped me from relaunching. I am re-establishing myself as worthy of being accepted, of being loved. This is another reason you don't want someone to be too big, because then the rejection will be so harsh that it'll be hard to activate yourself again. But it isn't as if you only reject yourself. People do reject us. So we're admitting that, and we're accepting it as what I call one of the givens of life. Sometimes they accept you, sometimes they reject you. Sometimes they like you, sometimes they dislike you. Sometimes they like you, then dislike you, whatever. (laughs) Um, But you're simply, whenever it comes through as a loss, you're bringing it to the grief. And with this grief, with this letting go, you're letting go of blame, ill will, need to retaliate. There's no I'll show them. That's what you let go of. That's what helps you go on. Still trying, still blaming them? Still have ill will? Still trying to retaliate? You're never going to make it to the go on stage. You're never going to be able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. 
you're not going to be able to get there because these are holding you back. This is where you reject yourself. When you try, when you hold on to the blame, the ill will, and the need to retaliate. So she's bringing up an important question, but we don't want to underestimate that uh, that it's normal that people have power over us. It's normal that people have power over us. We are not trying to stop that from happening. You could not be a full-on human if you didn't give people some power over you. No, it, that's not the problem. The problem is when the power has become bigger than your ability to deal with the blows, the hits, the rejections, the abandonments that might come your way. That's when it's a problem. It's not a problem that people have power, enough power that they can, that you can wind up feeling bad because of what they do or how they see you. That's just normal living. We want to be okay with that. But we don't want it to destabilize us. We don't want it to prevent us from getting on with life. What is the link that helps us not to do that? Grieving when it has been a loss and never letting them get so big in the first place that they came to mean more than humans are supposed to mean. How much are they supposed to mean? About as much as ourselves. Equal. Not way more. Be like the difference between uh, an ordinary person like ourselves and a movie star. They, they have a bigness because the, the, they're big on the screen, literally, and they're famous and they have great skills that we don't have. And Hollywood has trained us to see them as big. No problem. That's fun. That's entertainment. But when you start doing that to your partner, then you've got problems. They're supposed to be just another human like yourself. Anyway, our time is about up, but I really appreciated how you all have been present, and I hope what I've said has been helpful. So thank you. Good luck. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.